Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm pleased to welcome as my guest Dr. Matthew Major, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at uh, Northwestern University. Welcome, Matt. Great. Thank you so much. Pleased to be here. We're going to be talking about an article that he and his colleagues have published in PCJ entitled Fall Prevalence and Contributors to the Likelihood of Falling in Persons with Upper Limb Loss. I'll summarize the, uh, the study briefly, and then we can talk about it. This cross-sectional study focused on fall prevalence in 109 persons who had upper limb loss at or proximal to the wrist, and it identified clinical factors that contributed to the likelihood of falling. Factors that the investigators focused on included body and health characteristics, activity level, fall history, prosthesis use, and balanced confidence, which were determined for subjects using an online survey. In logistic regression analyses, they looked at the contribution of these factors to the classification of fallers and non-fallers. The study reported that 28.6% of the participants reported experiencing two or more falls in the past year, and their analyses indicated that an increased likelihood of falling was significantly related to reduced balance confidence, use of the upper limb prosthesis, and reduced physical capabilities. So, Matt, in, in your paper, you noted that, to your knowledge, no studies have previously reported the prevalence of falls in persons with upper limb loss, and I was really surprised by that. Why do you think so little work has been done in looking at this issue? Yeah, again, thank you very much for uh, paying closer attention to the study. I think it's uh, the results are quite interesting. So, so to your question, it's uh, really quite relevant, right? So I think to date, rehabilitation research on persons with upper limb loss uh, has been concerned with upper limb function when executing goal-oriented tasks. But I think this research is typically focused on terminal devices, control systems, and suspension techniques to facilitate reaching and grasping. Of course, this research focus is reasonable given how important such motor tests are to interacting with our environment, uh, and I think the impact that it has on our cognitive and physical well-being. So I think as is our nature, sometimes we become too focused on a problem. So consequently, it may be that this component of rehab for the upper, upper limb loss patient was neglected. I think in our efforts to develop integrative rehabilitation practices, uh, it may be that our scope needs to be slightly wider to effectively consider more of the holistic needs of the patient. And, you know, for me, as a biomechanist um, with a research interest in postural control and falls in persons with limb loss, I understood how critical arm dynamics were to regulating balance, and I thought, surely this has to have some implications for upper limb loss. And I'll say that this uh, expectation was actually later confirmed for me. I was reading a memoir of a CNN journalist, uh, Miles O'Brien. He was reporting on his experiences with a recent uh, upper limb amputation that was secondary to acute compartment syndrome. Uh, do you mind if I just read a section of what he wrote? Sure, go ahead. Great. He indicates in his um, memoir that uh, it was nothing more than a slightly uneven sidewalk that took me down. And here are two things you need to know about life after an arm amputation. So first, your center of gravity changes dramatically when you're suddenly eight pounds lighter on one side of your body. 
Second, while my arm may be missing physically, it is there. When I tripped, I reached reflexively to break my very real fall with my completely imaginary left hand. My fall was instead broken by my nose, and my nose was broken by my fall. So, you know, for, you know, for me, as I'm reading that, um, the pieces really started to fit together. And I thought, boy, I really, someone needs to start paying attention to this. And that was kind of the impetus for this research, essentially. Yeah, well, I'm glad. I'm glad you did. You know, one of the challenges in this kind of work is recruitment of people to study. And uh, in your article, you talked about how you advertise in various listservs frequently by individuals with upper limb loss as well as their care providers. And you also use clinicians and institutions that work with um, prosthetics with people with upper limb loss as well as educational programs. I'm curious as to what you told people who you were recruiting and whether or not you were concerned that your recruitment might over-represent uh, fallers. Yeah, it's an excellent question. I'll admit that I'm concerned with everything that I do. Um, it's always good to have checks. I'll admit that uh, when I was recruiting for the study, I wasn't necessarily shy about the intention of the study. Uh, initially, participants were invited to complete a survey to collect information on their mobility and fall history. So it was actually pretty clear on the aim of the research um, that it, was help, it, was, it would allow us to better understand the impact of upper limb loss on falls uh, to ultimately help improve ambulation safety. So when soliciting in this way, there's always a concern of recruitment bias. Um, this is, of course, a limitation to the study. You know, however, in my mind, this is really only the beginning of this line of research. And, of course, I highly encourage other researchers to reproduce these results. I think we can only influence evidence-based practice through a converging body of literature. And I will say, though, that since the completion of the study, we've performed a few biomechanical studies here in my lab to characterize possible control and locomotor stability in this cohort. We've had samples in each study of about 10 or 11 individuals, and they've demonstrated similar percentages of fallers. So I think at some level that, that result is reassuring. But, again, you know, there's always a limitation to these types of studies. Uh, and as you alluded to, uh, recruitment is really quite challenging. So it took quite a long time, actually, to uh, build up to that sample size. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I was also interested in your dependent variable. You classified fallers as those who had two or more falls in the past 12 months. Why not classify a person who fell once in the past 12 months as a faller? I was interested in how you approached that uh, that classification. Sure. Yeah, historically, there have been a large amount of studies that have used that classification scheme where they tend to classify individuals who fell once in the past year um, as fallers and then uh, non-fallers are essentially considered those who have not fallen. I think if we, if we start to peer into the literature on falls in groups that are prone to unsteadiness, especially uh, recent literature, there seems to be sufficient evidence that while a single fall of any year may be sort of a one-off event, re repeated falling is likely indicative of more of a systemic issue. So actually, I'll borrow a few lines from the article. So the article indicates that um, frequent falls in older adults have been associated with greater physician contact, functional decline, admission to long-term uh, care facilities, and mortality. And then moreover, sensory motor functions, so things like reaction time, body sway, quadriceps strength, proprioception, cadence, and stance time, has been found to be similar for older single fallers and non-fallers, but then significantly worse for multiple fallers. So, again, as, you know, as I indicate in the article, the purpose of this line of investigation was really to identify factors that sort of underlie falls and then ultimately possible control in this patient group. And the idea was that it would satisfy two long-term aims, the first one being to screen individuals who may be at an elevated risk of falls, and the second one to organize appropriate rehabilitation interventions and goals to minimize this risk. 
So, you know, essentially what we're trying to look at really are these systemic issues that may be related to fall risk, or at least fall likelihood in this case. Um, and so categorizing individuals in this way, those who are potentially repeated fallers, seem like a more appropriate way to uh, classify. Sure. And I, I did note that when you looked at those who fell at least once, 45.7% of your sample reported having fallen in comparison to 28.6% who reported two or more. Were you surprised by those prevalence rates? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, initially I, I did expect a relatively high prevalence of falls in this group. Um, but admittedly, the statistic did surprise me somewhat. The prevalence that we found is that it's near that reported for persons with lower limb loss, which at some level is expected given the loss of sensory feedback and active joint control of the legs, which again are critical for balance. But all things being equal, um, I feel these results really emphasize the need to dedicate attention to this public health problem in persons with upper limb loss. You know, that we discussed earlier, I think the, these type of results really should be replicated. However, I think beyond the prevalence numbers, um, what really stood out to me was that um, an even more important finding is that for those participants who did fall, nearly a third reported suffering an injury from their most recent fall, and about 15% required medical attention. So I think alone, those statistics demand that we take a closer look at this cohort to identify ways to minimize the risk of fall-related injuries, uh, which I think can have, of course, both long-term health and economic implications. Yeah, I do think it's an underappreciated uh, area. I was also uh, interested that you you had this issue of whether or not to include people who also had a lower limb loss, and you did include them. What was your rationale for including those with both upper and lower limb loss in your sample? Yeah, it's a very relevant question, and it was something that, I was as I was going through the analysis, really required a lot of thinking, careful thought, and planning. Um, in the sample, I, I did have 14 participants with both upper and lower limb loss. Um, you'll see as you read through the article that uh, I did statistically analyze the data sets with and without these individuals. And I think what was nice is that I actually received comparable results. And I, I think this engenders some confidence in the contributions of upper limb loss to fall likelihood. Um, but you're correct. Ultimately, I chose to include these individuals with multiple limb amputations. Uh, for me, as a research health scientist, also for the VA, you know, I appreciate that individuals with upper limb loss may also experience lower limb loss just simply due to the nature of their pathology. Um, and I think this group represents a relevant subset of prosthetics patients, many of whom are veterans and military service members. So including these individuals with polytrauma, um, in my mind, helps enhance the generalizability and also the clinical relevance of the results. Um, you know, again, it's worth noting that the, the variable was controlled for in the analysis, and though it did, did demonstrate a relationship with fall likelihood in the univariate analysis, it actually wasn't a candidate for the multivariate analysis um, that was used in the final model for predicting fallers. So, again, that, that particular variable in terms of lower limb loss actually fell out of the model in the end. Yeah, I, I, I did note that. I was also interested that, consistent with your hypothesis, persons with upper limb loss had uh, nearly six times higher odds of being classified as a repeat faller if they reported use of an upper limb prosthesis. I have to say that surprised me. I didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. Why do you think upper limb prosthesis use was associated with falling? And I think it, it held in your multivariate model as well. Yeah, that's right. It did. Uh, boy, boy, it's, you know, again, a great question. And I'll say in the time that I've been presenting on this work, I've, I've started to engage in some really great discussions with people who are interested in this line of research, either because of their own research interests or their care providers. 
Um, and I've come to understand that perhaps this hypothesis that I presented here is maybe somewhat controversial, but the expectation uh, was derived from my understanding of the role of arms to the biomechanics of balance, again, coming from a, um, coming at it from a biomechanics or biomechanist perspective. I think while non-impaired individuals tend to use their arms to control body center of mass dynamics um, and also to tightly regulate angular momentum around the body's vertical axis, uh, they're relying constantly on the developed whole body internal models that direct motor response to the postural disturbance. And so these models require knowledge and feedback of our limb position and inertia. And I think for those individuals who use a prosthesis, um, these inertial models, or excuse me, the internal models need to be updated periodically to incorporate the prosthetic limb. And I think this assimilation may prove to be challenging for prosthesis users uh, as a device or even the same device may not be worn throughout the entire day. So consequently, an arm prosthesis may be inherently maladapted, per se, for facilitating postural control. So for instance, prostheses are typically lighter than the intact arm, and they're not really intended to arrest the fall if they're used for grasping or support. So again, returning to this concept of internal models, you know, a recent study found that poor arm prosthesis embodiment can actually be a postural disturbance and require additional control demands. And actually, my, my own biomechanics research has produced similar findings in which increased weight of a prosthetic limb can actually help balance the body axis during standing for those with unilateral upper limb loss, but actually comes at the cost of increasing postural con control demands. So although these devices are, of course, essential for interacting with the environment, they may actually have unintended consequences. And again, I'll, I'll just make a note here. You know, these results obviously by no means should discourage use of an arm prosthesis because, of course, they are quite useful for domestic leisure and work uh, activities. But again, you just have to think about and be mindful of the perhaps unintended consequences that using a prosthesis might have. Yeah, exactly. You know, turning to your multivariate analyses, you already mentioned lower limb loss fell out of the model. Um, two other factors fell out, uh, BMI as well as physical activity. I was surprised that physical activity fell out. Did, did those two findings surprise you at all? Yeah, at some level they did. Um, the finding that lower balance confidence, prosthesis use, and then the low physical, uh, perceived physical capabilities and their association with frequent faller status, they, they do seem reasonable. And similar results uh, regarding the association between balance confidence and physical capabilities have been observed in other patient groups. And of course, the use of prosthesis does align with my hypothesis. Um, but yeah, the direction of association between BMI, physical activity, and lower limb loss, uh, of course, as re revealed in the univariate analysis, again, they seem reasonable given the body of literature on falls, and so, again, also aligned with expectations. Uh, however, it just seems that when accounting for the influence of the other variables, their contribution is somewhat diminished. Uh, diminished. You know, from a statistical uh, standpoint, uh, you know, obviously this result of lack of significance was due to a large variance in the odds ratio. Um, you know, overall, I think uh, the benefit of this type of analysis is that we now have some insight into which variables may be important contributors to fall likelihood. You know, this is not to say that factors such as lower limb loss and BMI should be ignored, uh, but when considering a prosthetic patient holistically, there are certain variables which clinicians uh, should be tuned into, right? So I think it's important to note that the final regression model explained only 47%, I believe, of the data variance. And so there's clearly other factors at play here that um, we haven't really picked up on yet. Well, and you've, you've already commented on my last question, and that has to do with your recommendation in the article that clinicians should be screening uh, to identify individuals at high risk. Uh, any other comments about that recommendation that you wish to share with our listeners? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think I think it's actually a very important question, and of course, uh, I'll sort of approach it with some caution because the research is really only in its initial stages. Obviously, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Um, you know, I think that a useful feature of the study is that the factors related to falls are clinically relevant and they're all self-report. So, um, you know, therefore they can be collected in a clinical setting really with minimal resources. You know, so for instance, balance confidence was captured using the activity-specific balance confidence scale. It's a survey which requires no more than about five minutes to administer. Um, you know, I'll acknowledge that we still need to explore the psychometric properties of these instruments, instruments, excuse me, to fully evaluate their usefulness, but at this stage, you know, I'd recommend that therapists share a simple conversation with their patients to screen for fall risk. And I think this work highlights that falls may be a real health concern for persons with upper limb loss, which prior to the study was really not widely recognized. Uh, you know, conversations with patients uh, could include questions maybe that probe their status, including prosthesis use history, perceived physical capabilities, including concerns regarding balance. And then really more directly, have they fallen in the past year? And if they have fallen, what were their well, excuse me, what were the uh, circumstances surrounding that incident? You know, again, the results from my study suggest that while nearly half of this cohort experienced at least one fall in a given year, almost a third will actually fall again. So I think these brief but targeted discussions can raise awareness for both the patient and the clinician. I think in the time that I've been presenting this work to clinical audiences, I've had people approach me afterwards to indicate that you know they've either never thought about falls as a problem for these patients or that they suspected this problem was actually real, but never really considered integrating methods into their practice to probe or address it. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the article, and I appreciate you taking the time to discuss it uh, with me and uh, to share it with our listeners. And I thank you for publishing it in PTJ. I wish you continued success in your research. Thanks so much, thank Alan. You. I really appreciate the opportunity.